Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm William Chen. And I'm Sarah Watt. And each month at Cinema in Context, we discuss two films, one current and one retrospective, with some connection. It could be the same actor, same director, or a similar theme. This month, we are discussing Jojo Rabbit, which came out this year, and Inglorious Bastards, which came out 10 years ago in 2009. The connection being they are both films set in World War II uh, with a kind of comedic edge, shall we say, or a satirical edge, uh, many edges that are <laughs> usually the antithesis of a film set during Nazi wartime Europe, yes. we shall say. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, William, do you want to jump in and give us a bit of an uh, um, introduction of Jojo Rabbit? Oh, of course. So Jojo Rabbit is the late, latest movie by Taika Waititi, uh, New Zealand's favourite son, sometimes. <laughs> uh, and it, it is about a boy um, growing up in Nazi Germany called Jojo, and his kind of his adherence to to Nazism, to every facet of Nazism. He's so engrossed in the propaganda that his best friend, his imaginary friend, is Adolf Hitler, himself played by Taika Waititi. And the whole movie is about how throughout the, it's called adventure, I guess, throughout his travails, Jojo starts to basically be deprogrammed. Um, in a way that's sort of heartwarming, sort of funny, and also sort of sad. Hmm. Excellent. And Inglorious Bastards is the sixth feature-length project by Quentin Tarantino as both writer and director. Uh, he had made three sort of crime films in the 90s, and then a couple of Grindhouse-style films in the 2000s, and then sort of started his period piece time of his career with Inglorious Bastards. So... It's set, set in uh, France, Nazi-occupied France in World War II, and follows three stories. It follows the story of Shoshana Dreyfus, a, a Jewish-French um, woman who is living under a pseudonym and running a cinema. Uh, it follows uh, Colonel Hans Lander, mm-hmm. Colonel, I believe, mm-hmm. who is a sweet-talking, multilingual um, uh, Gestapo agent, I guess, or, or a member of the very high up anyway in the SS. Yeah. Very high up in the SS, who has a, a particular skill at finding where Jewish people are hiding and disposing of them in horrific ways. And of course, the uh, titular Inglorious Bastards, a group of ragtag American and other culture um, soldiers who find it their mission to scalp Nazis. And these three storylines interweave through five chapters of growing tension Mm. uh, with an explosive ending. Indeed. One might say. One might. And as usual, we will be spoilering all of these movies to Bilio. So if you haven't seen them, you need to race off and do that now and then come back to us because we are going there. Excellent. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I'm going to jump right in and say that uh, when Inglourious Bastards came out, it was the first film that I was able to see uh, legally at the cinema, mm. um, you know, in Glory, uh, what was it? Grindhouse never really came to New Zealand. Mm. There was a version of Death Proof that came on the screens, but Inglorious Bastards was it. I saw it six times at the cinema. Gee, wow! Uh, I was a big fan of this movie, and I hadn't seen it for a number of years before watching it this week, uh, and it was only eclipsed by Gravity, which I watched seven times at the <laughs> cinema. Wow! Um, yeah, so that's that's my 
that's the the genesis of my feelings towards Inglorious Bastards. My oh. my. Oh, sorry, just to say that my I was old enough to see Reservoir Dogs when it came out in the cinema, and it is to this day in my top ten of films of all time, and it is to this day one of my most formative uh, cinematic experiences. Um, and and it's still my favorite of Tarantino's films. And I saw Inglorious in the movies, um, but was not madly enamored of it. Thought it was good. I think I had some issues with it because I. I for the last, however, what did we say, 10 years ago? Yeah. So for the last 10 years, again, until this week, I've thought, yeah, yeah, it's fine, but... But couldn't have articulated why the but. And then having rewatched it, wow, I can see why everybody raves. Uh, and every, and many, many people think it's their favourite Tarantino. So, yeah. Um, I just want to apologise for watching Inglourious Bastards for the first time on the plane. Oh. <laughs> oh, I didn't know where you were going with I was saying, what? That was the first time I'd seen it. <laughs> it was Christmas 2009. Mm. What a Christmas uh, and <laughs> What a Christmas it was. Uh, and it's, ama- it's an amazing movie. And I just remember being transfixed onto, you know, tiny seat back screen. And feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm missing out so much from missing it on the big screen. Particularly the final sequence, right, taking mm. place in a cinema. But if it enthralled you on a small screen, does isn't that a mark of an amazing film? Mm. Absolutely. That's really powerful, yeah. I guess on the subject of gravity then, that's a yes. depressing film to watch in a plane. <laughs> yes, I was going to say. <laughs> I don't know how it translates, but the reason why I saw that film so many times is because being in the cinema was such a big part of that yes. movie. Particularly mm. the Dolby Atmos yeah, that's sound, right. the Embassy Theatre in Wellington, the 3D technology it's one of the few 3d films i actually enjoyed watching it's aspect ratio it's just phenomenal and and the music being in 3d in terms of it all going around you and i've never seen it again since whereas in glorious bastards yeah i mean watching it on my tv was wonderful It, it is it's absolutely fine and i think you know oh my gosh i'm such a reservoir dogs girl simply because it was the first time we had ever heard dialogue quite like that from characters quite like that talking about things quite like that Mm. and immediately i i mean i'm not i'm not that embarrassed to say i got myself a notebook and a red felt pen and a black felt pen because i'd read that that's what quentin wrote his scripts like uh, and I thought, that's what I want to emulate. I'm going to become a, a screenwriter and a director, and I'm going to be the female New Zealandish Quentin Tarantino. And it's because of his dialogue and his characterization. And so even though the camera work in the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, um, the tension notwithstanding, just the fact that you can make a scene with two people mm. talking to one another for a long time so scintillating Mm. absolutely speaks to the power of that doesn't it that it isn't a gravity and it doesn't need a big screen um and it will still just be the most captivating cinematic cinematic or televisual experience Mm -hmm. that shot where the camera moves around the two characters in that first scene and then goes down into the basement yeah and you realize what the stakes are you know up until that point it's all a little bit what's going on here is he going to hurt this man Mm. and then you it all just clicks into place I, you know, that moment in the cinema, I will, I will never forget that. And equally, when he pulls out the huge pipe, yes. the kind of laughter through the audience, it endears you to this, yes. this character straight away, even though he's, he's being incredibly um, manipulative and, and dastardly um, to kind of undersell the horror of what's going on. Yeah. Um, and I was a little bit disappointed in Hateful Eight uh, when Tarantino reused that gag. Mm. With yeah. Channing Tatum um, in the haberdashery. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, spoilers, too late now. Um, but Except was... I think it wasn't a pipe. 
Or was it a pipe? Oh, no, the camera move. The camera oh, the camera move. move. Yeah, I the thought you meant... I'm suddenly like, I don't remember Channing <laughs> Tatum was in the haberdashery with a big pipe. Okay. <laughs> no, but it's the, that scene. It's a reveal that yeah, he's yeah, been yeah. there the whole time. Yes, of course. And um, I thought, oh, Tarantino, you've done that. You've done I, that. I, I really liked it. I really, really liked that. I, I, I thought it was a nice callback to, you know... He is a man of movie. tropes. And he yeah. is a massive caller-backer... And I guess, <laughs> his own films. Just you know, just just as the third act of Inglorious goes completely off the rails, I think that denotes the turning point of Hateful Eight into something completely different. Mm, yeah, fair enough. I do love when Hitler dies. I think that moment where, yeah, I I think he. Do you mean when he's shot to death by? Yeah, Hitler? and I think yeah. you you know like it's that classic thing of watching a true story or a biopic or mm. whatever. Mm. You know how things are going to roll out. So there's kind of a. A, a, a dumbing down of the tension really mm-hmm. because you know how things are going to go and so you're sitting there going oh well I know Titanic's going to sink at the end mm. so but in this case you know <laughs> yeah that was all I well, guess to use a pun blown up absolutely and I mean this was somewhat revolutionary wasn't it in its day nobody expected this really to be fair you you speak of you know the when you know how history is going to unfold now Valkyrie and I'm you know I hesitate to speak of a Brian Singer film but it's actually really good and Tom Cruise is really good even though that is about a foiled plot to assassinate Hitler, and you know it is because it isn't a Tarantino film, so therefore it ain't going to work. The tension is extraordinary, and I remember thinking, ooh, is he going to make it? Is he going to make it? Even though part of my brain must have gone, uh, no, Sarah, he, he's, he's not. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and I still find Titanic absolutely thrilling, but you're quite right, you know. This, though, wow. Mm. And you're so happy that he quit, that Tarantino goes there. Yeah. I think Titanic, like, uh, even though I did bring it up, I agree with you. And I think it works because the storyline is of, of two fi- fictitious true. characters. You don't actually know how it's going to end. Yeah. You just know the general trajectory of what they're going to experience. That's true. Whereas in Inglourious Bastards, the goal of the film is to kill Hitler yeah. and all of his leaders. So therefore, the theory goes that the yeah. war would be over. Mm-hmm. Um and agree, and I agree with the fact that he goes there completely, and not only does he go there, he goes even further and yeah. <laughs> yeah. squibs. Oh my gosh! In that moment when, because having only rewatched it this week, there were definitely moments I, I didn't remember well at all. In fact, to be honest, probably the scalping was the one thing I'd never forgotten. But I'd forgotten beautiful Melanie Laurent in the projection room being shot by Daniel Brühl. And I found myself going, but who's going to change the real? <laughs> not a, a, not being a projectionist, not quite realising shit, that was already in, in motion and that's all going to be fine. Because I was suddenly like, oh no, does it not work out? You know, so, the, oh my gosh, Tar- Tarantino's tension, as you said, Jeremy in this film, in so many scenes, is absolute genius. I mean, that, oh, you go, oh, you go. Sorry. Um, I guess that's the entire film in a nutshell, right? It's, it's a ticking bomb, isn't five it? Five chapters, basically five scenes, <laughs> and every scene is just people talking. Yep. Uh, While there is a, uh, a metaphorical, or in some cases literal, bomb <laughs> under a chair. Isn't it, though? Well, like, well, like what Tarantino described it as a rubber band being pulled. Yeah. Mm. And this whole thing was, how far can I pull this before it breaks? <laughs> yeah. And he just does it again, and again, yeah. and again. And it's it's beautiful, the, the tension, but also the pacing of the movie. Um, watching it again, the, the thing that really stuck out to me was actually, it's a little bit of a callback. Um... At the beginning, where they introduce the character of Hugo Stiglitz, and it goes into some really 
obnoxious, insane 70s black exploitation. You see this badass kind of Nazis taking names. And then he spends most of that chapter just standing there. And you're like, what was the point of that? Yeah. And then, is it chapter three with uh, Sergeant Wilhelm and his famous friends? Four. Chapter four? Oh, chapter four? In the, in okay. the pub? In the pub. In yeah. the basement? Why and, are we in a basement? And yeah. then you start to realize, oh, this is why they introduced Hugo Stuglitz. Yeah. Because he is the ticking bomb. And he's going to be, you know, he's going to lose it any second. And it was just beautifully set up in a way that felt very, very unobtrusive. Yes. And, and just, I, I love that, because I, I'm, ah, oh, yeah, I, I love, um, what's her name? What's, D- Diane Kruger. Yes. And her character, and Michael Fassbender. Yeah. Yes. That's the first time I saw him in a film. And Same. The way that they just are weaving through that scene, and she has such an air of confidence, and things just go wrong yeah. and wrong yeah. and wrong. But and she handles it. It's extraordinary because when August Deal's character says, uh, "What is his name? Stiegler." Stieglitz. Yeah. Stieglitz. Hugo when he Stieglitz. Says, well, I think I will oh. join you, and we're all like, "No, you should just go." And she's like, "Yes, of course, you may join us." And we're like, mm. "And then I think I'll have a let's play the game." Okay. Mm. <laughs> yeah. well, no. Oh, that's not Hugo. That's not Hugo. Oh, who's that's, the Hugo um, Stieglitz? Um, he, he's the Nazi killer. Oh, he's, he's the, the German guy who's on the, the, the to become Yes, yeah. that's lovely. Yes, okay. And I, and I think there's that um, moment where you know. In particular on rewatch where he holds up the three fingers yes and you see bridget von hammerschmack's face drop yeah she knows that they've been found out yeah and it's just wonderful little moments all through it isn't that wonderful though because i dare say that none of us understood what he had done wrong but and and he said dry glasse and he did the three fingers and i was like oh I wonder what it was. And thank heavens, of course, Tarantino lets us know later on. And that's like, oh, now we've all learned something about German culture and the way they hold three fingers like this and not like this. Um, and so how fascinating. But how wonderful that in that moment and for a long time thereafter, that is not explained to us. Mm-hmm. It's only when Brad Pitt's character asks later that we get that. So, yeah, the acting and everything. And again, the tension is just wonderful. I love as well in terms of just Tarantino telling us things. You mentioned the changing of the reels. I love that you get like a you get a couple of film yes. lessons in this. So you get the way that the, the film reels are manually changed, yes. and it made me realize because I used to work at a cinema in Wellington, and we had the big uh, plates where they would make up films into these huge plates. And I now realize that that was quite a new a new technology yeah. that allowed for that changing of the of the reels not to happen. Yeah. Um, but you also get the, the the little stock footage of like. Hey, you can't bring those films on those here. Not that nitrate? They're, they're, nitrate. <laughs> they're flammable. Yes. Why? You, know? <laughs> you mentioned Michael Fassbender and your English accent just then. Made, I mean, honestly, I laughed and laughed and laughed. I mean, never mind Mike Myers, who's mm. an absolute revelation. Mm. And, and not only unrecognisable, but his accent is absolutely flawless. But for some reason, now Michael Fassbender, as we know, is half Irish, half German, which will probably account for why his German in the film is pretty bloody good. Mm. But, um, but of course, he's a superb actor who has played everybody. But for some reason, his very cut-glass British major in the army accent and just the, the really deadpan, straight-faced way that he goes about it, I was just in stitches the whole time. And he's not actually being funny. He's just being a caricature. But, it, oh my God, it's so rewarding. I think, just to kind of segue as well to Jojo Rabbit, one of the biggest connections that I found between the two films is they both have uh, a David Bowie song Aye. playing <laughs> at the end of their film, or at least yeah. in their final sequence. Yeah. And um, it's just as a side note, I actually used the scene in Inglourious Bastards where Shoshana is getting ready at the start of Chapter 5 
to teach the, the kids about um, non-diegetic music. Mm. And it takes a little bit of time, but I, I ask them, why does this David Bowie song from the 1970s, mm. why does it have to be non-diegetic? Mm. Why can't it be playing yeah, through yeah. a radio, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it takes a while to kind of get their head around the fact yeah, that... that it wouldn't the, have existed. The films, yeah, it doesn't yeah. exist in the, when the film's set. But it's wonderful. You've got um, Cat People putting out fire with gasoline with her kind of war paint getting ready in the wonderful classic Tarantino over the head shot yeah. of her mm-hmm. walking out and then kind yeah. of posing at the top of the, the foyer of the cinema. Mm. And of course the lovely We Can Be Heroes dance at the end of Jojo yeah. Rabbit. And I thought, oh, that's a lovely little, little connection. The other connection musically that I found is that both films start with, um, I was really chuffed by this, um, The Inglorious Bastards starts a little bit with Fur Elise, the Beethoven, do, 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 but it doesn't go there. It goes do, 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 and then goes very Western. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, is obviously to, to aficionados a, a sign that actually you know, it's a World War II movie, but this is a Western in its truest sense. Um, and I liked the, 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 the mucking about with Fur Elise in that way. But also in Jojo, of course, it starts with the German version of the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is absolutely exhilarating. And we haven't actually talked about how we feel about Jojo, but I did not hate it at all and did not find it offensive. And so some people have said the fact that that song, all jolly and happy, um, overlaying, is it is it Lenny Riefenstahl or... It's um it's very famous footage. The Triumph of, of the Wall, yeah. That's right. I, I, I mean, some of that footage was was I think from Triumph of the Wall. Yes, it is, and yeah. some people find that very distasteful. But of course, it's the that's yeah. that's YTT, and it's and it works, you know. So I, yeah, I love those musical uh, those similarities. Yeah. I found that moment quite jarring, and I don't think it was distasteful. But I was like, oh wow, there's something really quite. Um, Oh, uncomfortable, uncomfortable about mm. about this, but it was clearly for a purpose. And uh, you know, I really enjoyed Jojo Rabbit. And one of the things that impressed me about it is how it was so clearly from Jojo's perspective, except for one exception, which I'll get to soon. Mm. Um, but it's all from his perspective, and it is so, so does such a good job of capturing the 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 boysiness, and not not just gendered in that way. I guess just the. The, the fun childlike the childlike or? and the fun of being in this club and like you know we're going off to summer camp and we're gonna you know and, and there's all the horrible horror, horrible kind of propaganda woven into it but mm-hmm. it captured the sense of why you would be taken up with something like um, Hitler's youth mm. and then it's about his deprogramming and I thought that just that introduction of that footage at the start with that music did a wonderful job and then of course the shots of all the scenes with Ribble Wilson you know yeah excitedly claiming they're gonna go burn some books and the kind of um, (laughs) Sam Rockwell camp leader ridiculousness it all sold that Mm. (laughs) you know what that's like well for me the the opening of Jojo Rabbit I thought was was quite brilliant um but I just wanted more of it I I was actually quite disappointed by Jojo Rabbit Mm -hmm. um that that tone you talk about Jeremy Absolutely, in space, just that feeling of comedy and history mixing in a way that really is uneasy. Mm. And I just found the rest of the movie, or the majority of the rest of the movie, to be very, very safe. Mm. And that, it would, well, to me at least, it was completely predictable, every single story beat. Uh, there were some very, very effective parts, and the story beats, you know, it doesn't have to be surprising to be effective. But it just felt to me kind of like a waste of opportunity. Like there could have been really something here, 
And yet this was a story that we've seen played on film many, many times. You know, online people have been comparing it to stuff like Life is Beautiful and, and whatnot. Um, what, 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 what aspect? Sort of the, the, the playing along? Oh, no, I don't know. Maybe... Because... Because my, my thought is that the, the scenes that were uncomfortable is when the Jew herself and when, uh, and when the, the story itself really, really satirized Jews in a very, very open way. And you think, oh, oh, you can't say that. Oh, well, obviously within this context you can, but oh, that's uncomfortable. Do you know what I mean? The yeah, stereotyping yeah. and all that sort of thing, which I thought wasn't as safe because it was definitely on the nose kind of saying, you know, here are the, the tropes. Um, but you, so I'm, yeah. Yeah, maybe that stuff was, I mean, I, I enjoyed that stuff and mm. how it plays out in the movie, but maybe the payoff is just really weak. Yeah. With, um, with the Steve Merchant character finding the, the sketchbook, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, just everything coalescing in the way that felt, oh, of course this is going to happen. Um, when Scarlett Johansson has her big scenes, I turned to my brother in the cinema and it's like, when's she gonna die? Right. Um, I think with the, the, the shoe the shoelace yeah. um, piece, I was like, oh, she's not gonna survive. She's too brilliant. She's too perfect. <laughs> mm. Oh, by the way, by the way, she, that was one of the best performances I've ever seen Scarlett Johansson Yeah, I liked do. her a lot. I thought she was phenomenal. And just so full of life. I, I think the film definitely was something that I did not expect. I was mm. expecting a Wes Anderson... Moonrise Kingdom it kind of like film, that. especially with the trailer. Mm. But actually, the moment that Jojo has his injury, it the majority of the film takes place in the house. Yeah, yeah. And it really reminded me of, in terms of um, Taika Waititi's back catalogue, it really reminded me of Eagle vs. Shark. It was this this sort of buddy flick um, sort of romance, but it's about these two sort of oddball characters mm. and, and the finding an equilibrium. And the rivalry of it. I love that. I love the fact that his a lot of his male characters... Um, are, and I said this in my review, but a lot of his male characters are often trying to prove themselves and just look so pathetic. Mm, mm. And the women are usually quite quite clued, secure, quite and, secured yeah. and cute, clued into what they're doing, but don't really mind anyway. Yeah, it's quite a lovely dynamic. Um, but I found that it was took a little bit for me to get used to what the film mm. was doing. And I I do think that I do think that film has some pacing issues, like it sort of meanders along and then it has this very kind of. <laughs> I don't always be explosive because it's not, but there were sort of war elements at the end, so mm. just come on in. Mm. But I sort of thought maybe it's because the film's trying to tell the story about this relationship, and it's a story of deprogramming, mm. which I don't know if we have seen deprogramming before. I don't uh, from I, in terms of, of the story the youth kind of thing. I don't know. I mean, I can't think of something. Mm. I can think of well, boy stories... in striped pajamas. Does that count? I don't know that story. Um, I mean, technically, he makes friends with the little Jewish boy. I don't know if he's exactly programmed or deprogrammed, but he's unconditionally friends with this little boy. I can't remember whether that was out of ignorance, though. Mm. Um, I just think the story mm. of Jojo, you know, kind of gathering evidence on, on Jews, mm, Jewish people, mm. and it's all this rubbish that she's spouting mm. to kind of play to his ignorance. Yeah. Um, there was a... I, hadn't, I don't think I've yeah, seen I thought that. I hadn't no, seen no, that I hadn't. So, yeah, I thought that worked. I thought that worked quite well. Look, I didn't unconditionally love the film at all, but I went into it the same way I went into Joker, thinking this can go one of two ways for me, and it's very likely to go the wrong way, and it didn't. So I think I was pleasantly surprised by Jojo Rabbit. Didn't find it offensive, didn't find it egregiously mixed tone, as, um, as I often do. Like, I do have some issues with Boy, parts that I love, parts that I find problematic, um, to use that beloved of film words but um 
And yeah, but it, but it wasn't a sensational or startling film. Oh, I don't know. So maybe I'm just appreciating the fact that I didn't hate it. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Well, speaking of boys, since you bring it up, does anyone else, and of course you bring up Wes Anderson, Jeremy, does everyone else feel like this is the most Wes Anderson Taika Waititi has been oh. since Boy? Because Boy is just, it's Wes Anderson set on the east coast of North Island, mm, basically. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think yes, up until he gets his injury. I don't yeah. feel like... Once the injury occurs, the film becomes far more real. Mm-hmm. Or and until the third act, where it goes back into the the surreal. Right? Yeah, I think so. I just think that the focus on the relationship between the the, the boy and the, the young woman is very well done and incredibly acted. Those two kids. Yeah. yeah. And, oh, and, and the piece that I was going to that, that I was referring boy is to. Amazing. He's amazing. And the girl. I thought they yeah. just carried that film. And the piece that I referred to that is not from his perspective. Are the scenes with Scarlett Johansson and um, I don't Thomas and McKenzie? Thomas and McKenzie mm. in the in the kind of crawl space. Yeah, and it's the only time it's not from his perspective. It's the only time Scarlett Johansson is not being the goofy mum. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's also the scenes that allow the film to pass the Bechdel test. Yeah, that's true. Um, and there's that wonderful moment where they discuss what it means to be a woman. Yeah, you know, you look in the you look in the eye of a tiger, and then you see the picture of the tiger. That was and fantastic. And just just staring. Mm. That's very Wes Anderson. But yeah. they're just staring into that picture, <laughs> and I made me wonder: if, did Taika Waititi write that, or is it from the novel? Mm. Um, either way, it's a beautiful piece of writing. Mm. Um, and I thought that there was a real—I don't want to say maturity, but there was a confidence of humanity in the film mm. that I was very True. impressed with, and I didn't expect to happen. But I should because I do feel all of his films. Bath or Ragnarok is doing other things. Yeah. But I do think, in terms of his other films, all of his films, uh, and, and what we do in the shadows. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, you I'd know. forgotten, because I was about to say, all of his films have a, have a young boy who has only one parent, or has an absent parent. Absent now, parents actually, are a big part yeah, of... Yeah, but now yeah. I'm realising, of course, that is a theme through his films, but, of course, uh, what we do in the shadows, it's a whole different beast, and yeah. a marvellous beast. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but, um, I thought that the... Um, there was a lot of, um, yeah, just lovely character moments, not just with the two kids. I do think the Sam Rockwell oh, character was brilliant. He's amazing. His arc is my favourite in the entire movie. Yes. And it's so un- unexpected. Yes. Like, you see him and Alf- oh, Alfie Allen's hilarious without much dialogue, but just mm. how he, oh my gosh. I mean, that's, they're just so unclear, because I read into this, the, the fact that he covers them, covers for them with the journal mm-hmm. is because he's in a relationship with Alfie Allen. That was is that what was happening in that scene? I didn't get that. I I I I thought it was just partly charm because it's kind of a fairy tale, and partly because he also knew that the war was going to end anyway, which brings right. us back to Hans Lander in Inglorious Bastards in a way. But you know that mm. that Sam. I mean, right from the beginning, Sam Rockwell's introduced up on that podium, going, "Hey, kids, welcome to camp." You know, <laughs> while well, we're doing this, I mean, it's not going to make any difference. But you know, here we are, kind of, you know. <laughs> Putting on a brave face for the kids yeah. and that sort of thing. So I don't know. I I, I don't know. I can't remember why I read into that. There was, I think there was clues in that scene. There's definitely clues that they're in a relationship earlier yeah. on in the film. But in terms of that scene and why he was covering for them, oh, right. um, I, I can't remember mm. what they are now. But I was thinking, hmm, he's afraid that he's going to be caught, and then. That's why he's covering for them. Isn't it enough that he should just find compassion, Jeremy, without a reason? I no, I suppose, but I, I feel that we, I can't remember now what they were, but yeah. I remember seeing in the theatre going, hmm, this is interesting, they're definitely, mm-hmm. yeah. So I do think that the turn there, the the unexpected 
Uh, the unexpected arc, as you say, I think is interesting and it can tie into Hans Lander in Inglorious Bastards. And you mentioned earlier, Jeremy, about Christoph Volk's incredible performance. <laughs> and, you know, he won an Oscar and many other things for it, and quite rightly so. And have you ever seen an actor, A, look like he's having a better time, and B, look so effortless at doing it? He's extraordinary. And you mentioned the multilingualism. When he's speaking French at the beginning, I was like, holy mackerel. I've seen this guy do German. I've seen him do English. This French is incredible. And then his Italian <laughs> later on. And I'm like, oh, I was in raptures about all that. But anyway, how interesting that Hans Lander, who keeps us guessing, in, as you say, in almost all five chapters, Right at the end, he's like, well, there's a telephone and I could, I could easily just stop all this now. And actually, to be quite honest, and I'll only say this to you guys and no one else who might be listening, <laughs> I, I sort of went, what? I don't understand. And Doug was like, shall I pause and explain? And he paused and then had to explain. And Because I, I was like, why doesn't he just stop it all? You know, but I, I got it. But then, utterly gullible right till the end, you know. Um, and that was unexpected because he seemed like the kind of guy who was more likely to do the double crossing. So, yeah, there you go. It's it's interesting, eh? Like, Tarantino talks about when he wrote that character, he was like, that's a great character. And not thinking, I'm, I'm never going to find anybody to play this. Oh. Like, it was Christoph Waltz. It's just brilliant. Vol he waltzed in and nailed it. <laughs> and it's like, and, and just as another side note, I, who, I didn't think that um, it could be Eclipse, but he's such a lovely character in Django Unchained. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it's so heartbreaking. His whole, uh, one of my favourite moments in cinema is when Django says Alfreda scene and kisses his hand and puts his hand on his head. Like, I just love that moment. But yeah, back, back to Glorious Bastards. He just is having an absolute blast. Oh, like, the gosh. war is his playground. Yeah. And he's, <laughs> the film is Christoph Waltz's playground. He's just, and I love that moment in, when they're having uh, the strudel. Yeah. He <laughs> tells her to wait for the cream. Mm. Uh, uh, uh. And I then you claim. have that moment where he goes, he's going to say something to her and you mm. think he's figured it out. Yeah. And, you, and I don't know whether he... It's this, either he doesn't know who she is and he's just carrying on, but I also wouldn't put it past him that he does. He totally he knows. Does know who she and is, he and he just likes just, messing with her. Yeah, and he thinks, and oh, it's she's genius. It's brilliant. But also the way he wolfs down that streusel is unbelievable. And I said to Doug, I wonder <laughs> did they do this in one take? Because he not only does it brilliantly while speaking French fluently, but he's acting the whole time nom, 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 through the whole thing. And he gets all the way to the crust. Mm. And and I thought, this is extraordinary if this is not take one. <laughs> one of one, you know what I mean? We probably ate a lot of strudel that day. Amazing. And I, um, it's interesting as well, again, to kind of talk about Inglourious Basses, but in a different track. This is the last film that Tarantino did with his long-time mm. editor, Sally Meekin. We've mm -hmm. talked about her before. Um and it is, it, is the, it is such a well, like you said, William, it's a well-paced film. Mm. It's long, mm. but each of those five chapters just builds in the last, and it has a real energy mm. about it. And I do feel that um, after this film, his, his movies do get longer and more languid. And self-indulgenter. And as much as I love Django Unchained, and I do, you get to the fourth act of that movie, and it's <laughs> yeah. still going. Yeah. And it, and it all comes together at the end in a satisfying way. But no, it doesn't. I, I you it think does. horse tricks are satisfying? <laughs> Look, we, you know, there's a burning house. Like, what more do you want? <laughs> we talked a lot about the tension, and I think that the tension he does in Inglorious is literally brilliant. And by comparison, and we will be talking about this in other podcasts, no doubt, the beloved of most people other than me, once upon a time in dot, 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 Hollywood. Uh, no, once upon a time, dot, 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 in whatever. Yeah. Um, that film. <laughs> 
that where there is the, where there is the big the big moment of tension at the ranch mm. um, is is handled kind of okay, but the rest of the film, in terms of its pacing and tension, is is null for mm-hmm. me. You know, and and I and we've said it before that the loss of Sally Menke is huge for Tarantino because he is somebody who not only writes and creates all of his darlings, but literally will not kill them. Mm. Um, and it's for me, it's a real shame because I have. But I have loved him since 1992 and been a loyal, loyal fan and follower. Mm. And I'm getting increasingly disappointed. I liked Hateful Eight, actually. I mean, I liked it, but it had problems. Mm. But I am increasingly disappointed at his inability to craft a uh, a crafted piece Mm. of beautiful art, which he's more than capable of. We had our staff retreat recently and, and a bunch of people went off for a walk in nature. And a bunch of us didn't. And um, the bunch of us that didn't, we decided to stay back and we, you know, playing some board games. And, I, and at the end of that, we said, oh, a couple of us said, let's go watch a film. And we put on put on a hard drive into the TV and uh, we watched Kill Bill, Kill Bill Volume 1. Mm. And it was such a blast. And yeah. it's one of my favourite, if not my favourite, of his films. Yeah. And uh, it was just wonderful film that's you know that's effectively a four-hour movie because they split it in half yep. yeah uh, but, but it's vibrant isn't it it's, and it's brilliant and boom. everything works yeah everything and it works. moves so quickly yeah i don't think any other tarantino film any you know it comes even close yeah i'd agree with that yeah because even in reservoir dogs which is a shorter film yeah it still kind of takes its time absolutely and that's the crazy thing there are languid talky scenes and there are languid talky scenes my golly in inglorious bastards but for some reason, he nailed it in terms of, as I keep saying, keeping us captivated mm. yeah. throughout. And it's not even just, I mean, oh, maybe it is. I was going to say it's not just because the Jews are under the floorboards or it's not just because um, uh, August Deal's character is clearly on to them and knows that Hammersmark is, is, you know, whatever it is. But somehow that talking and that length of it works. Amazing. So talking about the tone of the film. So Glorious Bastards... You know, I think it's very successful in its tone, but it doesn't really highlight the horror of the war beyond just showing some of the horrors. Yeah. But in terms of the weight of what's going on, it's not really present. And I don't begrudge the film for that, but I think because it's doing something different. I did find it interesting the way that Jojo Rabbit played with both of those tones. And for me, like obviously there's that heartbreaking scene where Jojo walks into his mother's shoes, mm. which absolutely it's predictable, but it's still a pretty impressive moment and um great acting from the kid Mm -hmm. but the the part that really got me and i was very impressed was when Stephen merchant's character's in the bedroom and they're doing the heil hitler and it's Mm. here jojo has to say it to every single Mm -hmm. person and the audience is all laughing we're laughing we're laughing and then the mckenzie um thomas mckenzie thomas and mckenzie my gosh she's got confusing first and last (laughs) names it could be other um and then she has to do it she has to do it and nobody in the cinema's laughing no it's like it has this twist to it and i thought Wow, YTT, you really pulled off a moment there. Yeah. You, you were able to flip the comedy to, to reality yeah. very quickly. And I was very impressed by that. And I, and I think that um, he was doing something, he was trying to do something that didn't always work, but it was something impressive. And I, I, you know, I'd much rather see a film try something and fail than. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I, I do wish, though, that his Hitler had more to do. Because it seemed like the movie, he kind of just leaves the movie. Mm. Yeah. And then comes back at the very end, which was a little disappointing because I think it's a fine performance. Mm. And it's, at the beginning of the film, a really neat counterpoint to yeah. a lot, you know, of what's going on. But doesn't he leave? He leaves because the because he's directly correlated to how much Jojo is 
is um, is feeling the Hitler thing, right? Mm. And, and he's becoming, as you say, deprogrammed and sort of uh, less and less Hitler Hitler youth. And mm. so that's why he, imaginary mm. friend, I guess, isn't there. I, and I, I totally agree with you, Sarah, and I, but I do agree with you, William, as well. I do think it's the weakest parts of the film, and not because of Waititi. He does a fine performance, mm. and I think the idea is, works really well. I really well. enjoyed him, and, yeah. And I think it, it just it's not as well formed, mm. and I do think the film... Uh, it just becomes a little bit muddy in the middle there, and I mm. think if they if they had a bit more and then work, the, I, I felt the end in. was a, also a little bit of a squib where he gets kicked out the window. Mm. Like, I get what they were going for, but you never really built up to that point to make it satisfying. I agree with that as well. I did enjoy his turns with the Hitler rants. Yeah. I thought that was quite clever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do agree that, that that was that was like I said, probably for me the weakest part of the film with mm. the Hitler scenes. Mm. Is that fantastic scene though with the, with the poster, the propaganda poster, when Jojo's putting it up and his hand shows the two versions of Hitler? Mm. Man, really, really cool. One thing that's um, common to both films, of course, is the way that the actors um, were clearly sending up their characters. Um, and I did think it was, I mean, foolishly, I kind of was given pause for thought about the number of Germans in Inglorious Bastards playing either horrible Nazis or people wanting to kill Nazis. And, and for a moment there, I was like, oh, I wonder if that was uncomfortable for them. And then I was like, oh, look, you know, they, they, their whole German film industry is based on films of playing Germans and in sometimes times Nazis. So, you know, it's fine. Um, but um, but um, the fact that in both films, the, the the actors are completely committing to their characters, but in obviously in Jojo, much much more more silly. Actually, Sam Rockwell is delightful, but he's definitely taking the Mickey. Whereas in Inglorious Bastards, I don't know, is just some sort of genius at work with all of those actors. Daniel Brawl, I thought was wonderful. I yeah. forgot he was in it until Amazing. I was watching it again. And all of them are taking it really seriously. But obviously with a twinkle in their eye, because they know bloody well what sort of film they're in. But same with Fassbender and Michael Myers, Mike Myers, um, doing their, their br military British. Well, I was a film critic, in fact, and, you know, um, I wrote a couple of, couple of books um, and all that sort of thing. And they're taking it really seriously and you buy it and it's really fun. What about Brad Pitt? Oh, in which film? In, I mean, oh, wait, sorry. <laughs> oh, in that film. He was in a glory. He was well, in a he's, <laughs> he's the most caricatured, mm -hmm. and he's probably the one I had the biggest problem with because of that mouth. <laughs> Seriously, and I get it. He's doing Tennessee, and, you know, yeah. and, and he's consistent, and he's not unlikable. He doesn't drop character, but I did find him over the top, whereas all the others I believed. Yeah, for me, it was him and Eli Roth. I, I mean, he's oh. not a big character, but... Donnie is, uh, yeah, he's a cartoon. He's a live-action cartoon. Did what about you know? Gorlami. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Buongiorno. Yeah. Grazie. Yeah. Did you know, and I, I, full credit to Doug, because I did not, Adam Sandler was the original person going to be the Eli Roth character yeah. in Inglorious Bastards. And then there was some sort of scheduling difficulty that I think revolved around... Christoph Volz, maybe, mm. and there. Oh no, revolved around Brad Pitt, probably, and therefore Adam couldn't do it, and he got Eli in. Now I don't have a lot of time for Eli Roth. I don't like. I don't like his movies, Hostel, and all those that torture porn stuff. But I also think nothing of him as an actor, and he's basically Tarantino's mate, one yeah. of his best mates. Yeah. So you know, I get it. But I don't think that's a great casting choice. Uh, but did you guys see the deep fakes um, where they replaced 
uh, Eli Roth with Adam Sandler. Oh, and no. that's really cool. Is it's this really on quite cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this I'd is love just to. a couple of weeks ago. Oh, just, Holy just a couple of things. So one's a quick one, which is you know that Antonio Margaretti is a director mentioned yes. in Once Upon a yeah. Time in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> which I quite like. But interestingly, so um, Eli Roth. Uh, the guy that plays Antonio Margaretti mm. and uh, one of the other bastards, they are the three kind of stooges in Death Proof. Mm. I don't know if you've seen Death Proof. They are, they, they're in the bar with the girls. They're in the bar with the girls at the start there. and yeah. they kind of have these sort of very horrific conversations about how they're going to get the girls drunk. And, yeah. you know, and it's, it's just really interesting to see them as a crew, as a sort of a posse, mm. as the boyfriends of the and, first lot of yeah, girls. That's quite and then nice. they become the Inglorious Bastards. It's a nice callback. <laughs> it's a nice callback, but it's. He does the same thing with Zoe Bell as well. She sort of mm. pops up in his mm-hmm. films and it feels like they're somehow connected to these very different characters from previous films. <laughs> I'm, I look, you know, I like Zoe enormously as a person and I'm super glad she didn't wind up in Inglorious Bastards mm. because with a Kiwi accent it would have killed it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, from Auckland. Yeah, yeah. we just, you know. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's from Hateful Eight. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> it's, like, it's our biggest city and I had to go to research to find out whether it was actually our biggest city back, back, in, it, back yeah. at that time, which it was. Yeah. But I don't know if she would have had that accent. <laughs> I don't think if the New Zealand no, twang would have quite have, have developed at that point. It she would have been have. reasonably British still. And I still a bit mean. Scottish, probably. Yeah. I absolutely loved both films for being um, for having so many foreigners on their cast. Absolutely. Lo- I mean, my goodness. I thought... So I, so I thought to myself, here we are watching essentially a foreign film. And I wondered how many people watched Inglorious Bastards when it came out. And for them, that was their first foreign film, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Reading subtitles hard out. And of course, it's not a foreign film. It's very much an American film. But how wonderful to have all of that German and all of that Italian and all of that French. And so fluently said. I mean, Daniel Bruhl's French is amazing also. And Michael Fassbender's German is amazing. And all these people were just sensational and I'm such a languages person I got a real buzz out of that and I love also the fact that Jojo Rabbit and of course Kiwi director so it's not as strange um, really only had a couple of Americans in it and yeah. otherwise you've got lots of Brits and an Aussie uh, and a Kiwi, Kiwi. Um, yeah. and that's I, I, you know I like that mm, mm. the accents weren't that great though in Jojo Rabbit? <laughs> no well did, yes did, in Jojo Rabbit did everybody great. sort of Put on a slight German accent. I don't think it mattered. It kind of worked with the cold mm. sort of goofy. They did of the a little film. bit. Even Rebel Wilson, she's sort of doing a yeah. German accent. That was with her. so goofy. Yeah. yeah. And Steve Merchant's German accent. Mm. Uh, someone said, and this is fantastic, that Steve Merchant and Jojo Rabbit reminded them of Tot from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Totally. Except, Absolutely. Except stretched out by Willy Wonka's like taffy stretching <laughs> machine, so he's super tall. Mm. I do feel like that's that moment where they open the door and he's standing there. Is mm. it taken directly out of Raiders of the <laughs> and I and I wouldn't have you know I could I, I would totally expect that of Taika Waititi mm. that he would be referencing that in his World War Two <laughs> very serious but not serious Nazi film. It's a really interesting point when you think about casting. Steve Stephen Merchant is the sort of person I think certainly for me who the minute he appears on screen. I get a, a flush of goodwill or, or good feeling. And similarly, so far, with Rebel Wilson and with Sam Rockwell. And it's interesting, I think, when the actor um, pre... What's the word? Um, comes before the character in a way. Mm-hmm. And so you see them and you feel about them for who they are rather than whatever type of character. And by, by contrast, in Inglorious Bastards, I don't think we necessarily feel that. We certainly didn't feel that way about Christoph Waltz in these days, in 2009, because he was um, less of a known entity to non, 
uh, European audiences. And so we weren't carrying that kind of thing, or for Daniel Bruhl, uh, or for Mel Melanie Laurent, you yeah, know? I'd yeah. seen her in a couple of French films, but that was it. So really what you're getting the from is the character, mm. which is kind of how it ought to be. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't really be going, oh, look, and here's Stephen Merchant. Have a nice time. It's interesting, but though. We do. He, I think he's had more of a successful acting career than Ricky Gervais. Like, <laughs> who would have thought that? And but, he's, yeah. he's but I think it's because he's films. rolled out as Stephen Merchant. Well, I mean, his character in Logan didn't feel like that. He was, oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's right. He was in, in Logan. Is, um, mm. What's his face? Yeah, the... What's yeah, that guy. <laughs> that guy. Um, what about... Uh, what's, is Emmanuel, what's her name? Emmanuel... Um, is it Emmanuel? She's from Blue is Warmest Colour. Oh, the Lesser I was like, oh my gosh, she's in this movie. I, I had no hardly, idea. Hardly. I, knew she, I knew she was, but I'd forgotten. I was like, yeah. oh wow, and she's got that little part at the start. Yeah, and yeah, and that's it. Yeah. Um, but for Jojo, can we can we talk about the best actor in the entire movie? Who's that? Um, Yorkie. Well, the, the character. Oh, oh, the little boy. Archie Yates. Archie Yates. Oh, he's adorable. Oh, yes. My Goodness. Mind you, his, his pronunciation of Jojo changed halfway through the film. <laughs> Jojo! Okay. I was like, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> different day, different acting code. <laughs> but that, that kid, hopefully he's going to go places. Yeah. Because, man, what a breakout performance. And it's so naturalistic and adorable and, so and warm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he has such amazing comic timing with, yeah. with everyone. Man, oh man. Yeah. I also thought that of um, Roman Griffin thingy, whatever the little, the dude's name is, you know, the main kid. That's his first acting role. Uh, a Davis. A Roman Griffin Davis. Amazing. Yeah. And, and, you know, picked out of an audition line and boom. And his acuity with, as you say, actually, timing as well, and his expression and his reposts and everything was really stunning. For a, He's 11. And he will have been nine or ten when he made it. And Amazing. he needs to shoulder the movie. Yeah. I mean, mm. so, as you say, Jeremy, almost the entirety of the movie is focused on him. Like, very, very few shots when he's actually not on camera. And, and just, he's super yeah. cute. Like, he's an yeah. adorable looking kid, but you've got to be more than that. Mm. And he is. And there's just those moments where he's sitting in his, in his armchair, yes. you know. And it's <laughs> Looking brilliant. sullen. Brilliant. Um, yeah. And there's a little, little facial movements and the way that he hits his beats. I, I absolutely agree. Mm. Thank you for listening to another episode of Cinema in Context. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please share it with your film-loving friends. You can listen to Cinema in Context through SoundCloud, Stitcher, Radio Public, or Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, which are great places to let us know what you think of this episode, or give us suggestions for future films to discuss and compare. Look out for our next episode in a month's time, which will be our best of 2019. And until then, kā kite anō.